I'm hoping there's just kind of one main point today, and it's this, okay? Let me read it to you, and uh, then we'll go from there. It is this. When life is at its hardest, God is there at his deepest. When life is at its hardest, God is there at his deepest. Now, this doesn't imply that God is going to be saying to us throughout this psalm, hey, when you leave this place today, look for some hardship, some really deep times of life. No, he's not saying that. But it does mean that if we trust God, we live with hope. And we live with the hope that in our darkest times, the times that we find most difficult in life, the times of extremity, God will be there. God will be there. I want to show today that God can be there for us. Therefore, we do not need to be driven in those very difficult times of life by a sense of desperation. We know what that feels like. Rather, in those moments, I want to show that we ought to not be driven by desperation, but we need to be drawn by his love. When life is at its hardest, God is there at its deepest. I think that's what Psalm 107 will demonstrate to us, I think. I hope. I pray. But why is this so important? Well, you may have heard the cliche. You may have even said this kind of cliche. Um, You will often hear it around those kind of difficult circumstances. People will say about someone, they will say, he was there for me. He was there for me, or, you know, life was really tough, and she was there uh, for me. Someone even said that to me this week, and they died a few hours later, but it wasn't enough. Because I wasn't designed that way. I wasn't designed to be enough. I know some will simply put that down to me being a man. Certainly, if you've seen the latest um, kind of trailer for the, have you seen the latest Pixar movie? It's coming out tomorrow. It's called Inside Out. It's kind of voices in their heads, and, you know, there's anger, there's joy, there's... Uh, Go and see it. I know you'll take a kid, borrow mine for a day, and go and see them. It's absolutely brilliant. But the trailer kind of depicts, you know, men are kind of, the, the, the thoughts inside the man, they're kind of playing on computer games, they're ignoring what the wife is saying, there's a glazed look on the front of the face, and, and there we are. We watched that trailer the other day, and my wife chuckled. I thought that was quite insensitive, but there we go. <laughs> Obviously, it resonated a little bit. But I don't listen as well as I ought. None of us do. I don't understand your pain and you don't understand mine. I don't know what to say and I don't know what to do and I don't know when to shut up and I don't know when to be quiet. And nor do you. Being there, me being there, you being there, sometimes just isn't enough, is it at all? Yes, of course, when life is hard and things are tough, we need someone to come alongside us. Yes, we do. To hold us, to listen and to be there in the tough times of life. But sometimes, when we all know this, we need more. There are times when there is nowhere else to turn and there's no one else to turn to. But the point today is that we'll see that God is there. And he's there every step of the way. Just as Paul said in Romans 8, Romans 8.31, he says, you know, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Well, Psalm 107 is a song where the psalmist sings into the darkest of nights in the most difficult of times, and he says, God is there. God is there. It's a psalm that tells us that godless desperation in the darkness of life is a second-rate way to exist. Choose to live drawn in those dark times by God's love. That's the point. When life is at its hardest, God is there at his deepest. Let me just quickly, if you turn your eyes down to Psalm 107, let me give you an idea of how it's kind of structured. 
As I've said over the last two weeks, the Psalms are written with all sorts of literary structures and you need to be kind of aware of what's going on here. And when you see it, you'll go, ah, okay, I know where we're heading. So let me point them out. Psalm 107, verse 1 to 3, it's an introductory, give thanks to the Lord. Okay, the song is introduced, the call to praise and thanks. And we'll see why that's so significant in a moment, especially in the dark times of life. And then you get the the middle section. It's the main section, verse 4 through to verse 32. Okay, and in that time, look look down, you'll see verse 4 to 32. There are four stories. Did you pick them up? Claire picked them up as she read because her her tone went when she repeated... Uh, various lines. They go, oh, we've got to say that word again. We've got to say that. And you hear it in the tone of your voice because you're, you're surprised by it. There's lots of repetition. And in each story, they're formed with a similar pattern. The people cry out in distress. God was there. He was there for them. We see that. And they respond with praise. That's the middle section. Four stories, lots of repetition. We'll see why. And then in the third section, verse 33 to 43, It's an odd end. It's a reality check in some ways. There's a challenge right at the end. Look at the last verse. In fact, it's a very interesting way of ending. There's a challenge to be wise. You see that? And to heed these things, to consider the great love of the Lord. I want you to think about yourself for a moment. Where has God been in the grim reality of your life? But also... In the joyful times of your life as well. Is God, has God been there for you the whole time? Have you perceived that? Well, let's find out. Has he been there? Let's go for it. Uh, our first point then, give thanks to the Lord. His loyal love endures. We're looking here at verse 1 to 3. I want to ask you a question though, if I can, to begin with. Are you overwhelmed by God's love? Are you overwhelmed? Do you kind of walk out of here, walk into the office, and you're just like, you're so excited by it, you can't stop talking? Or are you underwhelmed by God's love? Do you take God's love for granted, perhaps? Where before you just couldn't get enough of it. One American church leader I was reading this week once placed it as one of the major causes of division within churches. The distinction uh, and this division between those who are overwhelmed by God's love, excited, brimming full, or, and those who are underwhelmed by God's love. And he described it as this. It's a distinction between astonishment and dullness. Uh, which would best describe you at this moment? Look at that verse 1 though, if you can. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his love endures forever. When you hear those words, what's your response? Astonishment? Yeah! Or, hmm. Psalm 107 is not alone, interestingly. If you find yourself dulled by life, Psalms are a good place to start, aren't they? Because they, they give you a voice to celebrate the goodness of God. Songs begin... Uh, This song begins showing that we need to understand that God is a holy God, is a pure God. That is what is meant broadly by the term good. God is good. He is holy. He is pure. And that makes so much difference to our lives when we understand that, doesn't it? He deals with us. God deals with us in his love, in his holiness, in his pureness. 
The reason I think probably that so often we become dull to God's love is because we're not in awe of Him. We're not saying you are good, you are holy, you are pure. God is good. Wow, it should be that. But coupled with this brilliant goodness that we see in verse 1 is also His, I say it like this, I say His loyal love that endures forever. Because the, the word love there is a Hebrew word which is kesed or hesed. I don't know how to pronounce it, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but it's that word that was used throughout the Old Testament. That is, it's his covenant, enduring love. God is a covenant God. We've seen that throughout the Bible overview that we've looked at throughout the year. He has made a commitment by his word. And therefore God will always be loyal in that commitment, despite our disloyalty. Verse 2 shows us that how that covenant love is kind of played out. It's supremely shown as God redeems and rescues his people from their foe. The foe word there is the same word as distress, which comes throughout the, the psalm later. But he's a loyal God. It is a loyal love. Verse 3 shows the context in which the psalm was written. And again, for those of us who've done the Bible over you and know a bit of kind of the Old Testament stuff, we see the context makes a, make kind of brings the passage alive because it seems to be a post-exile song. That is, God's people have been taken into captivity by the Babylonians, taken down into Babylon, but now they're gathered back in the land. The, the split kingdoms of Israel and Judah are now being brought back. They're reunited to praise God and they're to give thanks as a result. He's good. His kesed love endures forever. I wonder there, is it, as you read that introductory kind of little, little section, does it seem odd to you that you need to be instructed to give thanks to God? Given who he is and what he has done, surely you might be thinking, well, it comes naturally, doesn't it, to me? I'm skipping down the road, high-fiving everyone, reminding them of all, you know, that God is good and his love endures forever. Isn't that you? Isn't that me? No. We have to decide to give thanks because if you're anything like me, you will know that ingratitude runs very deep into your veins, doesn't it? Have you ever thought why it is that we need to teach children to say thank you for their Christmas presents? You've been there at Christmas, you've probably seen children open their presents. What happens? They rip the paper off and if they're under two, they enjoy the paper more than the present. And that kind of like, what did I spend all that money on? You know, but they rip it off and what do they do? They enjoy the gift more than the giver. They give thanks for the gift. They focus on that much more than the giver. Spiritually, we have to be reminded to give thanks because we enjoy the gifts all too much. All of our lives are a great gift from God. And we neglect the giver. C.S. Lewis brilliantly put it in uh, one of his essays. He says, we enjoy the sunbeams and forget the sun. And that is why 64 times we're reminded in the Psalms to give thanks to the Lord. 64 times. Psalm 107 verse 1. If you just flick back one page to Psalm 106 verse 1, you'll see, surprise, surprise, exactly the same again. Go to Psalm 118 verse 1, Psalm 136 verse 1. They're all the same. We needed to be reminded to give thanks to the Lord. Why? 
well, I'll, I'll, you can have a look at these later, but in Psalm 50, because in giving thanks to the Lord, it honours him, it says there. In Psalm 69, it pleases God. It says, God prefers the thank you of a grateful heart than the offering of an ungrateful heart. That is, it pleases God when we give thanks to God. It also encourages others. Psalm 69 carries on, and it says that the poor will see and be glad when we give thanks. You see, others will give thanks when we give thanks. So give thanks to the Lord, because his loyal love endures forever. Let's go on. Look at our second point. It's kind of the major section of the whole psalm. But really, it's, it's give thanks because. And he gives four stories, and therefore four reasons to give thanks to the Lord. Let me take you through each very quickly, if I can. There's four accounts in the history of God's people where God deserves Praise and thanks for his wonderful deeds we see again and again in that, those repetitions. And remember, each story has a, a similar structure. Even the, the first word of each story is the same in the original. There's one slight change in our translation. Uh, but they all begin with the word some. Verse 4, verse 10, verse 17, and also verse 23, although it's translated as others here. But don't let that mislead you. Each account is not just, oh, it's about those particular people in that particular part of history. No, it's about all of us, all of God's people. There's no kind of exclusive position here. We need to look into these stories and see that we all can be lost, that we can all be enslaved to sin, that we all can be sick, and we can all be in danger of our lives. So each account is simple, and they find themselves uh, in distress, each account, the people then cry out to God. We see that as a, a repeated refrain throughout each of the little accounts. They recognize their helpless position before God and really before his word, his holy law, in fact. The final piece in each section is the saved, uh, for the saved is, to, is they give thanks. There is a joy in their deliverance from God. In a sense, what, what we see at the end of each of the, um, the little stories is a working out of verse 1 to 3. The people giving thanks to the Lord for his love and his endures forever. And we need to ask ourselves a really helpful question, I think, as we begin to look through these little stories. Is Can we really be truly saved? Are we really a Christian? If we are not joyfully giving thanks to God. Can we be continually dulled? As we go through each of these very quickly, please note that each scene, God saves his people, but he does so showing us, if you like, a different aspect of his saving work. A saving work that we know through whom? Well, through Jesus Christ. So let's have a look. Give thanks because, firstly, he satisfies. We see that in verse uh, 4 to 9. The scene, I'm going to run through them very quickly. So cast your eyes down, you'll get an idea. The scene is of these uh, lost people. They're desperately hungry, verse 4 to 5. Now, we don't know particularly which story it's referring to, but it could be a number, couldn't it? It could be Israel's, uh, the people of Israel uh, back in the Exodus, uh, enslaved in Egypt, or during the exile. Now, of course, these stories are whispering and pointing us forward, aren't they? As they mirror Christ, perhaps in the desert when tempted and so hungry. So these verses should be, if you like, an illumination for us as, we point us, uh, as they point us forward to Christ. Now we are in our, in our comforts of this world, in our, in our area. We are never ever to probably know this kind of hunger. 
to be really, really thirsty. I doubt we'll ever know that. The delusional wanderings of the mind, the emptiness that can drive people to insanity. When you get this hungry, this thirsty, it taints everything. Someone there sent me this week uh, in the US in 1944, an experiment into the, the effects of starvation was conducted with the aim to see the impact of the concentration camps in Germany at the time. And the result was obvious physically. People became emaciated and so on. But mentally, the people were broken. It said depression, hysteria, self-mutilation and declining concentration, comprehension and judgment capabilities, they occurred in the majority of the men. Now, we can't get our heads around this, this kind of desperation and starvation. But we do know elements, just elements, of the kind of dissatisfaction, the... emptiness of our minds, the the longing that plagues us at times. So we see in verse 6, they cry out and they're brought somewhere safe. Verse 7, to a safe place. And it's interesting there, by a straight way. Do you remember that from Isaiah in our Bible overview? God is like their protector. And verse 8 shows his motivations in his love. And so the response should be, we give thanks. You see, the point here is, when, when life is at its hardest, and it's, it's so difficult here, God is there. He's the protector. He's there at his deepest. He satisfies. So give thanks. But also give thanks. Let's look, secondly, quick, second little story, um, because he liberates, verse 10 to 16. The next scene is a, it seems like a prison cell. Freedom is gone. They're suffering, verse 10. Darkness. Darkness is the big repetitive scene throughout this little story. It builds in emphasis as well. And it's not just an absence of light. It is, a, it is a, so you can feel it. You can almost touch it. Of course, it's parallel. And it's an image of death and even of judgment. And the surprising thing in verse 11 is, have a look. They deserve it. They deserve it. It's a punishment from God. And in verse 12, God subjects them to a bitter labour. And it's because of their sin. And there is no one there to help them. And repetitive, you know, the theme again. Verse 13, they cry out. That is, they recognise their sin. Like ours, it is is against God. It it is a rebellion. And like in the previous scene in verse 9, now in verse 14, God brings them out of their darkness. He liberates them. He breaks their chains. He sets them free. We're about to sing that at the end of the the service. Where before there was judgment, now there is this liberating freedom. There's no conflict here in God. He is both judge, yes, but he is also liberator. So give thanks to the Lord. He's good. His love endures. We've seen firstly he satisfies and secondly he liberates. Many causes to give thanks here, aren't there? See, when life is its hardest, and it was here in the story, oh, God is there. God is there at his deepest. Thirdly, we see he heals, verse 17 to verse 22. And the third scene now is one of sickness. We're introduced um, to this extraordinary verse, there is in verse 17, of what it is to be foolish. 
And to be foolish here means to, be, to try and live in God's creation as one of God's creatures, but saying, God, stuff you. I don't want to listen to you. I'll do things my own way. I'm not going to listen to your word. That is foolishness biblically and in all the wisdom literature particularly. It's a very loaded word and we see because of this foolishness and rebellion, verse 18, they suffer and they hunger almost to the point of death. So again, they cry out. It's the same repetition there. They don't deserve to be healed, but look at verse 20. In his grace, God sends his word and that is how he saves them. We also see here in verse 19 that his word has power. His word brings them into line with creation and ultimately rescues them from the grave. Conclusion, verse 21, give thanks. Same repetition again. Give thanks because he's good. His love endures. And when life is as hard, what is God doing? Is he just removing himself? Is he running away? Is he saying, you deserve that? No, in his grace and through his word, he brings rescue. He heals, and lastly we see in verse 23 to verse 32, he saves, he saves them. And the final scene is that picture, it's on, it's on high seas, isn't it? Dangerous seas. In that time, the sea was seen as a place of chaos. It was a scary place. No one went across the Mediterranean, they circumnavigated around the coastline. Hence why there's so many shipwrecks at the time. Seas were pictured as chaos and disorder, danger and death and that is not to say that God isn't in control in this scene look at it in verse 24 it is his works verse 25 he speaks and stirs the tempest the seas and the imagery of verse 26 and 27 it's incredibly vivid isn't it I'm a big fan of surfing. I'm rubbish at it, but I love watching it. And I sometimes go on those kind of YouTube clips, and there's one particular wave off the kind of shores of Hawaii called Jaws, and they try and surf it every year, and it comes in like once a year, and it's, it's like massively exciting, and the waves are like as big as a building, and, and so on. You can see these surfers going out, and, you, and like 99% of them sort of paddle out and go, ooh, no, thank you very much, and, and off they go, and they just don't dare. Those who do try, many die. See, the protagonist here starts off pretty scared, but when they come face to face with the power of what lies before them, verse 26, the courage just melts away. It's like they paddle off and go, no, no. And we all know what it is like to be in the storm of life, don't we? We wake up and we grit our teeth, put on our best suit, Apparently girls, they put your best shoes on. That's a girl thing I'm told, you know. We think we're going to get through however tough the day is going to be. All will be fine. But by the end of that day, you lie in bed in absolute tatters. Whatever the storm that we faced, it seems unpredictable. It seems totally unstoppable. And you may lie on your bed that night and you realise that your life has changed. And there's nothing that you could have done about it. See, the people cry out again in verse 29. They've got to the end of one of those days. What do they do? They cry out to God. And he stilled the storm to a whisper. I wonder, do you hear the other whisper there? Of another man who stilled a storm through his word? Oh, we see here, he speaks uh, in verse 30, doesn't he? 
and saves. See, when life is at its hardest, God is there at his deepest. He saves. And let me just run you through each of those four stories and show you the similarities if I can. In each scene, the people cry out. You can see it in verse 6, in verse 13, in verse 19, verse 23. God, in his loyal love, responds. He satisfies, verse 49, he liberates, he heals, he saves. And God does this despite the fact that he is the people's utter last resort. They get to the lowest point in their lives. And what do they do? Oh, we'll turn to God now, shall we? You know, I don't know if you've ever been invited out to you know, go out for, to the cinema with someone. And they ring you up and they say, hey, I've tried Ali, I've tried David, I've tried Claire... Oh, I've tried pretty much everyone on my diet, on my list. And you're my last resort. Can you come to the cinema with me? How do you feel? God is the people's last resort here. And yet still in his love and in his mercy. What does he do? He comes to meet them in their point of trouble. See, when life is at its hardest, God is there. He's there at his deepest. How are the people to respond? Well, it's obvious they're to give thanks. And the last verses of each of the scenes are the same. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 15. Look at verse 21. Look at verse 31. It's the same again and again. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love. And the question is, do we? Do we? Picture four scenes of your life. Do you give thanks? Are you dulled to God's love? Or are you gratefully giving thanks? But there is more to giving thanks. I just want to point out two. There was a number of things I could point out here. But let me just point out two. Zip your eyes down to verse 22. We're to tell of his works here. They're not just to respond by giving thanks in song. They're to tell of his works. And even to do that through songs of joy, it says. But that is you're not to keep God's love and faithfulness to ourselves. We're to tell others. It's one big distinction, I guess, between the astonished and the dulled. Because if you're dulled, you don't want to tell anyone about a dull God, do you? But if you're astonished by his love, you want to tell everyone. One other application of giving thanks is shown. Just uh, cast your eyes down to verse 32 for a second. The people are instructed to exalt God in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council. They would be the town elders there. Again, the point is, our giving thanks to God for his goodness and his loyal love is not to be a private thing. There ought to be an enthusiastic, astonished in his love. Public declaration, give thanks to the Lord for his good and his love endures forever. See, to give thanks, I mentioned at the beginning of the service, is a, essentially in, in the Hebrew word, it's a, it's a confession. It's an acknowledgement of who God is. We thank God because in so doing, we are declaring not only to our own hearts, but also to God himself and also to the gathered amongst us. We are declaring who God is and what he has done. That is what it is to give thanks. And remember, it is a command. Give thanks. Many African churches, I'm not going to get you to do this, so don't panic. But I heard this this week and I've seen it actually once or twice. Many African churches remember uh, that is you know, that command to give thanks. And they do it at the beginning of the services and sometimes at the end as well. And they do it with a response. It's kind of a, a leader, kind of a liturgical kind of response. And the, the, the leader will say, hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. And the congregation will respond, 
Amen. Obviously, they're very loud when you do it. And that's, we won't do it now, so don't panic. And then the leader will shout, God is good. And they will say, all the time. Isn't that great? Should we try it? No, it's okay. But it's hallelujah, amen, God is good, all the time. Why did they say that? Because they need to be reminded, just as we need to be reminded, 64 times in all the Psalms, four exact repetitions of this, give thanks to the Lord for his good, his love endures forever. We needed to be reminded to give thanks to the Lord. Because he satisfies, he liberates, he heals, he saves. And then we get to to this last bit very briefly at the end. Last point. Give thanks, heed and be wise. Because when you get to verse 33, if you have a look down, the pattern of these uh, repetitions is, is broken. There is a surprising reversal of fortunes. See, look at it, verse uh, 34. He he takes the rivers, the life-giving springs. He makes them into thirsty, parched ground. Likewise, in verse 34, it's the same. But then you get a flipping it around in verse 35. Look at it, the waters return, they settle. They are blessed over and over until verse 39, it's down again. But why is this here? Verse 43, as I pointed out already, says we ought to be wise and to heed these things. See, the world here is depicted as a place that shifts back and forth, yet is still under God's control. God is constant. He's in charge. His love doesn't wane at all. It doesn't change. And I think what the song is doing here is it's, it's providing you and me with a bit of a reality check. Things won't always be good, or things won't always be bad. But God will remain constant, and his love will be the same. See, the painful truth is that God will not let us carry on if we are dulled, if we are rebelling against him. He won't let us sin successfully in some ways. And in his love, sometimes God needs to reverse our blessings, to soften our hearts. We, like the people here, have been looking for the wrong things to fill our lives. And in those situations, perhaps, God in his grace sometimes makes things even more uncomfortable for us in his love. So that we can become humble before him. That we can, as in those four stories, begin to recognize that we need to cry out to him. And be drawn to his love. And not live life in a desperate way. God can bring blessing, but he can also reverse our fortunes. We can know his severe refining love, as we see in verse 34 and 35. Or we can know his joyful blessing in his love. In verse 39 to 42, it just turns to a more corporate, a more more kind of a a group community kind of sense. The same picture, same reversal goes on. Likewise, he brings down some and others he blesses. But God never goes anywhere in the whole scene. His love is never removed. You see, whether it's really hard times or really joyful times, we need to remember that, perhaps as I've said again and again, when life is at its hardest, God is there. God is there at his deepest. So give thanks. Heed it. Heed all that you've been learning and be wise about it. Verse 43 is, if you like, our take-home. We walk home with this in our hearts and our minds. Sadly, uh, if you're anything like me, we only, 
I only really ever, well, not ever, but I come to God all too often only in those really difficult moments. When I'm in pain or I have a need or a concern, I wish I was wiser. And I know that some of you think the same. I pray I will be wiser. And the point here is that God in verse 33 to 43 says, I will humble you. In my love, I will humble you at times. Sometimes I will bless you. You can joyfully give thanks to me at that point. But you are to give thanks and I might humble you and give thanks for that too. I wonder whether you need to take heed and be wise. I wonder if you're proud and dulled at the moment. See, the proud say, whatever my circumstances, I can do it alone. The humble says, I'm going to go to God. The proud say, oh, you know, I'll just kind of put a front on. I'll kind of look good. The humble says, I need you, God, and I'm going to take whatever you've given me. The proud will say, whatever their circumstances, look at my strengths. I'll muster through, stiff up a lip. The humble say, I just need you. I need your strength, God, right now. The proud will say, oh, I'm going to take the credit. Look what I've got through. Look, what I, look how great I am. The humble will just say, I need your strength, God. The proud will take the credit and the humble will give thanks and receive what God gives. And therefore, come to God. Because when life is at its hardest, God will be there at his deepest. Come to God and we come to him and we meet him at the cross. For that is where he meets us all in and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to the powerful word, living and active word of God, manifest and incarnate in Jesus Christ. We come humble, crying out to him in our need because he satisfies us. And Jesus Christ will bring us home to glory. He will liberate us from our sin as he strings out his hands on a cross and takes all the consequences for that sin. He heals us as he offers us forgiveness and peace in our hearts and he saves us as he takes us through the storms of this life and the ultimate storm of judgment to come. See, when life is at its hardest, God is there at his deepest, supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, verse 43, let the one who is wise heed these things and ponder the loving deeds of the Lord. Let's pray as we close. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Heavenly Father, we do apologise for the times where we have been dull to your love. Help us to be those who are astonished of your mercy and your kindness. And may we give thanks, recognising that you are good and that your loyal, chesed love endures forever. Amen.